my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. I hope you are all doing well. It's been a while since I spoke to you on the podcast. I have uploaded another video to the YouTube channel. This is a short essay on the character of Lacombe in Close Encounters. I will leave a link for it in the show notes. Um, been very busy with work and having been on holiday so it's been a while to kind of been able to sit down and do some recording as well as some never-ending home improvements of rather scuppered things but I'm coming back today because uh, back in January I purchased an old film textbook which was the BFI Encyclopedia of Westerns I think, judging by the one I've got, it came out in about 1993. It has a picture of Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven on the front cover. And I do like to pick up these type of old film books because often they are an absolute goldmine to discover new films. And what I loved about this book is that it has a kind of a history of the Western genre from its inception up until around about the 70s, 80s. And then it has a kind of selected A to Z of films um, and A to Z of things like locations and terminology and all this type of thing. And it has been an absolute delight. I was able to make quite a large list of Westerns that I had never seen, which I picked up whilst I was reading the book. And I systematically went through and watched many of these films. And I'm going to be talking about two of the standout picks that I had from this experience and it goes it is worth noting that the films i watched was a very very mixed bag there were truly some of the worst films i have ever seen in my life uh, 1940s when the daltons road directed by george marshall um i've decided to keep a spreadsheet of all the films i've been watching and i, I, I hopefully what this spreadsheet will eventually show me or what my favourite films are and what the films are I consider to be kind of essential canon films. And rather than just brainstorming um, a bunch of films down, I thought I'd kind of go through and update it as I watch. So at the moment, for example, Heat is my favourite film of all time. Close Encounters second, E.T. third, Call Me By Your Name is fourth, and Before Sunset is fifth. I'm sure this will change apart from Heat and says something rather miraculous comes along. But at the bottom of this list were many of the westerns I watched on this. Uh, another one which kind of sprung to mind was 1950's Broken Arrow, um, directed by Delma Daves. That was pretty terrible. Um, there was A Distant Trumpet by Raoul Walsh, who ironically is one of the directors I will be talking about today, though. But there were some legitimately great films in there. Um, a real oddity was J. Lee Thompson's McKenna's Gold, directed in 1969. And... I don't know if I'm slightly unfair on J. Lee Thompson. Um, sometimes I kind of think he's the, uh, I don't know, the Brett Ratner of his day. That's a little bit harsh. There's definitely some classics in there, but he, he does have a fair few duds. Um, and this one, in fact, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to be, that's a horrible comment to make about J. Lee Thompson. He isn't the Brett Ratner of his day. Um, that That's mean. I can't really think of a, a, a good alternative though to kind of show but certainly a very hit or miss filmmaker i don't think that's entirely mean spirited to say so but this film is crazy um I, I don't know whether it's good or not it's certainly not terrible but it is one of the most bizarrest kind of hybrid westerns that i have ever seen um if i was to say 
it sort of reminded me of one of the Indiana Jones films. I know um, uh, Pauline Kael was, was certainly not exactly entirely dismissive of it. She, I think she was kind of as bemused by it as I would, but definitely well worth having a look. Um, there was Northwest Mounted Police by Cecil B. DeMille. Absolutely loved that one. Uh, another DeMille film was Union Pacific, which was one of the first films, I believe, to win the um, top award at Cannes. Really, really enjoyed that one. Edward Dimitrix Warlock in 1959 um, has gone very high up my list. A, a genuinely fascinating film with Henry Fonda, Richard Widmark and Anthony Quinn. Like a lot of Dimitrix's work, it caused a lot of controversy at the time. And it's certainly, upon watching it, not exactly hard to see why. So it was a fairly mixed bag, for sure. And there's still a few more films that, that I'm going to be going through from this book. I've really fallen in love with the Western. I'm off to America again um, in September for a, a good trek around Utah and Arizona. And certainly it was nice seeing many of the locations in these films that I'll be getting to visit in real life um, in the next few weeks. But... I think um, I'm going to kick off with a look at the first film that really stood out on this list for me. And it was a Raoul Walsh film from 1930 called The Big Trail. Now, this is a Western that is notable for a number of reasons. First and foremost, The Big Trail was made in 70mm widescreen. And yes, 70mm widescreen was around in 1930. We often think about 70mm formats and stereo sounds as things that were invented in the 1950s. However, their implementation only occurred when Hollywood needed the financial incentive to change. The format itself of 70mm was being looked at way back in 1920s and Fox had actually come up with a format called the 70mm grandeur format as a way of enticing pace, uh, patrons into the cinema for an experience like no other. And after making a few shorts on the format, Fox filmed The Big Trail as their template film for 70mm grandeur, as well as being shot along alongside a more traditional Academy ratio. And director Raoul Walsh and director of photography Lucien Andriot and Al Brendel do a magnificent job in bringing the West to life in this format. Shot on location in Zion National Park, the Grand Canyon, Sequoia National Park and Jackson's Hole in Wyoming, the scenery more than does the format proud. But there was only there was a small catch to filming it in 70mm grandeur which was a budget of two million dollars this was a very expensive film thousands of extras and hundreds of animal on location and the slight issue was that in order to project the film in 70mm theatre owners had to invest in the technology to do so and they simply weren't ready to do that just yet in 1930. And unfortunately, The Big Trail was a huge flop. It seems to be a little ahead of its time. And given that the Depression started the following year, this would be the, one of the last epic westerns for a number of years. And it would also have bad consequences for the film's star, because at 22, this was John Wayne's screen debut. Now, it would be remiss of me to say that you could tell Wayne was destined to, for big things from the off. But at 22, Wayne does light up the screen as Brett Coleman. He has a cocky charm about him, a slightly 
physical awkwardness due to his height that makes him a tad goofy. And certainly the script plays to this. He is by no means the perfect hero, a bit awkward with the ladies and the line deliveries ring of a young actor learning his craft. Indeed, the Wayne persona that he would come to build over his career is very much in its infancy here. But given Wayne would star in over 40 westerns and as a historical document, his appearance, I think, is worth talking about for this film alone. The film's lack of success would see him relegated to be in the B-League for the best part of a decade before John Ford, an old friend from this time, would revive his career in Stagecoke. But the matter, fact of the matter is, despite the lack of success, The Big Trail is a hugely enjoyable western. It documents a large wagon train as it makes its way across the Oregon Trail. Brett Coleman, Wayne, sets off for the pie, hoping to find the murder of an old trapper friend who he suspects may be part of the wagon train. Along the way, the group must contend with the harsh landscape, hostile Native Americans, and of course, the possibility of murderers within their own ranks. And the big trail was made at a time when westerns were the prestige picture of the Hollywood studios. As Heaven Gate would prove so many decades later, sometimes the bigger the vision, the harder the fall. And like Heaven's Gate, the big trail is often stunning to watch. No expense has been spared to bring the West to life. You will see paddle steamers on rivers, hundreds of wagon and assorted cattle moving across the land. Costumes of all shapes and sizes in various forms of wear. Epic vistas with extras as far as the eye can see. And beautifully composed shots of the American West. And Walsh, working in the 70-minute frame, has a tremendous sense of composition for the format. In one shot, you see a river crossing and the sheer expanse of America, cattle in the foreground, horses crossing a huge flowing current with rain clouds on the horizon. This is a romantic vision of the West, the one I picture in my mind's eye when I think of it. And I don't think the film's comparisons to Heaven's Gate need only be on the kind of the epic failure of the film, I guess. Because like that film, I think it captures a wonderful sense of the community. There's scenes of singing and dancing that serve little in the way of plot, but give you a real sense of time and place. And I often find these types of transcendental moments in films often the most pleasing. It's the times where I drift into the films and become more absorbed by them. And with the constant sense of motion and discovery in the film, I legitimately felt I was on a journey of discovery with these people as well. And it does feel like a greatest hits of the West. There's buffalo hunts, shootouts with the Native American Indians. And perhaps if I was being a bit harsh, it does try a little too hard to please its audience. But that's what I suppose the films of the 1970s, uh, sorry, the 1950s 70mm spectacles did try and do. So I don't think it's really too much to dwell on. And in execution, Walsh manages to make it a genuinely thrilling experience. At times, I was really worried for the actors and animals during some of the scenes, especially during the river crossing. And it's the type of feeling you can only have when you are watching something that has been done for real on screen. And it's an interesting film. It straddles the silent and the sound era. It has intertitles to give us content and additional information and was made in the spirit of giving filmgoers a genuinely unique viewing experience. And it has beautiful scenery, great set pieces, and an easygoing, if at times perhaps a tad pedestrian storyline that might not be all that original. 
but it's enough to keep you interested and I can certainly recommend checking it out. Now, I managed to get hold of a DVD of the film that had both the widescreen version and the full frame version in them. You can get this on Blu-ray, but I would caveat that the image and the sound quality were not great. The sound especially was quite poor. And as I understand, there isn't a whole heap of difference between the Blu-ray and the DVD version. I did pick up my um, the Region 1 DVD off eBay for about a fiver. So if you are, and I would recommend seeing it in the widescreen format, it certainly was um, a very, very impressive film in that regard. So that is The Big Trail from 1930. Next up was a film that had been on my list for quite some time, but I had never actually gotten around to watching, and this seemed to be the time to get on with it. Um, it was frankly needed, because at this stage I had come off the back of a few duds, and I needed something to uh, <laughs> resurrect my interest in this little marathon I was going on. And because many of the films I'd watched to this point were origin tales of the West, People like Jesse James, The Taming of the Frontiers and the Pacification of Native Americans. America in, this, in these films was a wilderness that was there to be tamed and civilised introduced through strict moral codes of masculinity and honour. And it had all been done with a rather rose-tinted view. So when I arrived at William Wellman's 1943 film, The Oxbow Incident, it did some, come of something as a welcome ref surprise. It revolves around the potential lynching of three men accused of cattle rustling and murder. Despite protesting their innocence, the three are subject to mob law. In absence of judicial authority, the posse decides to condemn the men, even despite the cause of for the men to be arrested and tried by the local sheriff and judge. Starring Henry Fonda, something of a stalwart of the West at this time, the Oxbow Incident is a quite remarkable film. Made, of course, during the Second World War, it is a dour, depressing affair, and producer Daryl Zanuck's wife actually berated him for making it. It tested appallingly with audience, but received a glowing review from one Orson Welles, who claimed the audiences and the studio were unaware of what a great film they had on their hands. And indeed, it was a flop, but crucially, a huge critical success, and was even nominated for an Academy Award that year. And a time, thanks to cable television, it has become regarded as something of the classic that it truly deserves to be. I have watched it three times now, and I already consider it to be one of the most essential westerns ever made. And at a rather sprightly 72 minutes, the Oxbow incident packs a lot into its slender running time. We begin with the character of Gil Carter, played by Henry Fonda, and his friend Art, played by Harry Morgan, riding into a nondescript town where we learn that the local cattle rancher, Kincaid, has been murdered. A sheriff is away investigating the apparent crime, and a posse is formed, hell-bent on finding the murderers and lynching them. Led by the despicable Major Tetley, a Confederate officer who never really saw active service, he is a terrible husband and a tyrannical father to his son, Gerald, who demands join the posse and quickly becomes a bloodthirsty mob. News reaches the town that the killers are hiding in the Oxbow Canyon and the posse moves out to intercept them and to find the three men sleeping by the campfire. Now violence in the Western is often shown as a completely necessary action. It is required to restore law and order or right or wrong. It can have consequences. A killing you made back years ago can come and haunt you. 
in the form of a family member associate of the slain eventually taking their revenge. A good man may be forced to wander the west alone due to having to dispatch a friend who tried to garble cross him at the card table. Technical ability is often a factor too. The hero of the western relies on the speed of the drawn accuracy of firing to overcome his assailants. The western reveres his talent and the inherent thrill that it brings to audiences. The Oxbow incident brings another form of violence, however. This is what none of nobility or skill is something far more disturbing. It is that of mob violence. They literally cannot wait to hang the people they have already decided are guilty and mock their corpses. They act out a genuine glee, the suffering they are about to administer. It is a generally disturbing spectacle. The, the Western has never really dealt with the mechanics of violence in this type of way before, and what is unfolding is in, happening in a legal grey zone. The sheriff is investigating the murder and is two days away, and the local judge does not want to believe he has the authority to stop the deputy left in charge from deputising the rest of the posse and giving it legal legitimacy. Any attempt at stopping them or trying to reason with them is met with ridicule in a sense that those are trying two are not in fact real men. The Western claimed up to now that killing was a justified means to an end, and this film overtly challenges this idea. There is no need for a quick draw of the gun. Everyone has time to consider what they are doing, but the overwhelming desire is to ride out and find the perpetrators and dish out the justice they feel they deserve. Purely on suspicion alone. The film has not established the men's guilt, but you are deeply troubled by the assumptions that everyone has come to. You sense there is something terribly wrong with what is going to occur by the sheer certainty of the posse's belief that they are right. The Western has taught us that people who look like this aesthetically should not be trusted, and we as audiences don't. The film literally becomes dark as the posse heads to the Oxbow Canyon. And the Western gave us, gave its audience adventure. Here, the, the score and the scenery is far more muted. It feels like Joseph Conrad's heading into the heart of darkness. And indeed, we are. Vigilantism was a very real threat in the West. Indeed, Teddy Roosevelt said that it was needed to maintain law and order. And the Johnson County War is a good example of how terrible an idea that this could be. We know what happened in that incident through the film, again mentioning Heaven's Gate, where so many completely innocent people were simply tried and executed based on hearsay alone. Tetley is the cheerleader of this brutality, and when the suspects are caught, his true evilness comes shining through. The men are led, the, the accused are led by the well-spoken Donald Martin, played by Dana Mark. The men are led by the spoke, well, the men are led by the well-spoken Donald Martin, played by Dana Andrews. He is scared. Nothing he says is believed, and he uses every use of logic he has is rebuffed at every moment. Despite repeated pleas, the leeching is going to head, but now it has been delayed until the morning, hopefully giving the sheriff enough time to arrive and law and order to be resumed. Now, the Oxbow incident becomes almost imbued with a unbearable dramatic tension. Lamar Trotti's script is often condensed, feels like a condensed courtroom drama from verdict to death row and is a scathing critique of the notion of belief in absolute right and a call for due process. Everyone, no matter how heinous the crime, should be entitled to a fair trial, aka one of the central tenets of law of order. The script allows enough ambiguity that the men may well be guilty 
But so what? We have to let the authorities do their job. And Tetley and Co are lacking a sense of masculinity. By doing this, they're going to become the men that the Western myth demands. And is it that that means that the, these men won't be getting? And is that that means the accused won't be getting their day in court, regardless of their guilt or not? We see the face of the accused desperately trying to assert their sincerity. Anthony, Kin, Anthony Quinn plays one of them, shooting a pierced, defiant glare. Is he doing this because of something to hide or of complete disdain for what is occurring? And the scenes are gloriously shot with the character in the shadows and the faces lit in the moonlight. Whereas the West can often be about the expanse, this is a very claustrophobic, intense film about the power of the spoken words and the soullessness of the faces all concerned never breaks and you're made brutally aware that the fact that these men's lives may be about to end it's not pretty and it's not nice to watch and that is the very point of it it is one of the earliest examples of the revisionist westerns of sort there is a myth of the west and this film feels like an attempt to deal with the more troubling aspects of it it is downbeat and dour and is in so many ways very much ahead of its time. And I think it goes without saying, I think this is an essential entry into the genre. And at 75 minutes, it feels it contains more moral complexity, the entirety of the Marvel Cinematic Universe combined. Wellman and co made a film that breaks away with the conventions of the genre and they made it at a time when America was at war it doesn't surprise me that the film was not a hit it's a tough film it's not an enjoyable one but it's definitely one of one of my finds of the year and has already earned its way onto my essentials list okay so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast I hope you enjoyed it I will be back as soon as human impossible you can find me on twitter or X, as it's now known as, at Thomas24FC. Um, if you want to drop me an email, you can do so at 24framescast at gmail.com. So like I said, I will return as soon as humanly possible. Many thanks for listening, and uh, many thanks for the couple of people that have emailed me over the past couple of weeks asking how I was getting on and when the next episode was coming out, because it was those emails that spurred me to get my arse in gear in the first place. Okay, so many thanks for listening. Bye.